0: it is an ice rink out there um thank you so much uh glad you guys all made it here safely um, i'm going to dive right in we we're going to an, into ecclesiastes 7 this morning and i wanted to start by talking about a very renowned and staunch atheist by the name of richard dawkins uh, richard dawkins has been in the field of science and evolutionary biology for decades And he has a genuine passion in studying biology and is endlessly fascinated with new discoveries in the field of science. He is a proponent of the Big Bang that set in motion the manifestation of the universe, sun, moon, stars, solar system, everything. And a Christian theologian asked him in a debate why he does not believe in God And why does he believe that God didn't create the universe? And and Richard replied with something that I really would have never expected. Uh, He stated, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, Why would God, this all-wise, all-knowing, super-genius who created the vastness of the cosmos at the atomic level and the molecular beauty at the subatomic level, why would that same all-wise God be so concerned over the pettiness of the cross? Uh, in other words, why would the same all-wise God that made this entire beautiful universe care for such a small and foolish thing like Jesus dying on the cross? I want to come back to that question, but if you would, take out your Bibles, and if you had them, and open to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, the, the whole review of this chapter The main theme is trying to discover the contrast between wisdom and folly or foolishness. And as we go over this chapter, be aware that while the main theme of this chapter is wisdom, uh, the, the verses that we will be reading aren't strictly connected. There are different bits of wisdom, and these verses may feel very segmented, and it may read like a chapter in Proverbs. So as we read, don't feel like you need to absorb every single thing that we go through today. Um, Plan on taking home two or three nuggets of wisdom with you in this truly insightful book inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we will start at verse one. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death better than the day of birth. When I read a verse like this, I I think of a strong last name like Washington. You know, When you think of George Washington, a founding father of the United States, and on the day of his death left a legacy and a good name to carry through future generations. And the day of his birth, the name Washington didn't have near the amount of significance as the day of his death. It's like a renowned artist whose art is more valuable And precious after they die than when they were alive. And as we continue, we read on to verse 2. It reads, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. I was talking with a friend of mine a couple weeks ago who was going through a very painful time over Thanksgiving. Going through any painful time during the holidays is not ideal. Um, you, you know you see family that you haven 't seen in a while, and they ask, "How are you and you 're not sure if you 're ready to pour out your soul to your second cousin that you see once every three years and anyway this this friend recounted to me while while his family was having Thanksgiving and celebrating, he would often step away. To be alone by himself and just cry to the Lord, he would just cry out for deliverance, and it—it it made me think of this verse. And we looked at we looked at it together, me and him, and it mapped on so well. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. We have his family literally feasting in the main room, while in his room he's weeping to God in the house of mourning, and. In weeping, in, in this weeping, my friend told me how much closer he got to the Lord in these moments of mourning and how much more joyful he had come out of it. We look at a verse like this and we say, you know, man, it could have just been another Thanksgiving, right? Eating cranberries, pumpkin pie. And it would have been vain in the house of feasting, but the Lord has given you joy in the house of mourning. And in the latter half of this verse, it reads, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. What is the end of all mankind? What is this verse referring to? It refers to death. That's the end of all mankind. Everyone dies. And in sad moments like these, when you're in the house of mourning, the living take it to heart and realize their finality. Painful times give us greater perspective as we continue on in verse 3 where it says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Remember, as we, as we read this, we're looking at this through the lens of wisdom. And while these verses are penned by Solomon, uh, they are the very words of, of God. And this word says, It is wiser, better even, to be sorrowful than to laugh. Now, you read this and you may go, why on earth would it say sorrow is better than to laugh? Doesn't God say that he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and that there'll be no sadness when we get to heaven, when we're with him forever? Then why does God's word say that sorrow is better than laughter? With that logic, when we get to heaven, we should just keep crying. But in this fallen world, while it's not preferred to be sorrowful, it is better. Why? The the rest of verse 3 reads, For by the sadness of heart, sorry, for by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. When we experience trials that cause sadness, if we allow it, it gives us a greater perspective that leaps us into greater gladness. If you've been through enough sadness, you will experience through that sadness a greater gladness. And there is no better example of this than Jesus Christ himself. Uh, my, brother, uh, uh, my brother in Christ, Austin Felber, he's a, he's a dear member of this church. If you ever need to be discipled, um, I can definitely give you his number. Really good guy. Um, but he, he, he showed this verse to me in Hebrews twelve two that reads, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The cross that brought immense sadness and pain was endured so that Jesus would receive the joy that, and gladness that was set before him. Jesus received his great gift, his bride, you and me in, in Christ Jesus, a sanctified people for himself, worshiping, worshiping him in joy forever, making the Son of God very glad. And continuing on this theme, we look to verse 4. As it reads, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth." Mirth. Who wrote this? Shakespeare? Mirth is another word for amusement or happiness. This verse kind of bothered me when I read it because it's so true. Um, I love amusement. I love the lulls with my friends. I, anyone ever play uh, Jackbox on the TV? Right. You got your phones, you got quiplash, you got fibbage, drawful. Maybe there's some boomers in the audience that enjoy a healthy game of backgammon, or I don't know, what do you guys play? There's a game that Tom Sawyer played. Uh. <laughs> but Jackbox Night is, is truly, like Jackbox Night with my friends is my, is my house of mirth, truly. Give me some pizza, popcorn, bubbly water, extra bubbles, and I'm having a hoot. And all my friends are laughing hooting, hollering, and it's the best time ever. And then you read the Bible, and it tells you, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, and you go, come on, what? Are you trying to kill my joy? No. No, this verse is meant to realize that these amusements will not ultimately complete our joy. The jackbox nights or whatever game night that you have with your friends and family, are such a needed gift from the Lord. But if you live there, if you dwell there, if you make it your God, it becomes the defining line of foolishness. I learned this not too long ago, but muse, muse, the word muse means contemplative or to think, to ponder. You put the word a in front of it, it means none. So amuse means to not think. And the, 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 the farthest end of the spectrum that we get to in this seeking of pleasure is hedonism. And, you know, pursuing pleasure, going to the club, getting blackout drunk to forget the sadness of the world. It's foolishness. And it, this loving rebuke follows with verse 5 that reads, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. So someone can find friends at the club and, and praise them for how much beer they can chug or how wasted they can get. But to find a friend that really loves you will lovingly correct you. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 reads, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Direct your attention to verse six. It says, "For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity." You guys have heard that expression, right? Crackling thorns under a pot. No, I didn't either before I read it. But what does that mean? And I guess in modern day, our terms, you know, when you're sitting at a bonfire and you hear those pops in the fire, pop, and. um, That's the sound of wood splitting and releasing steam into the fire that makes that popping sound. That is the measure of worth that the laughter of fools has. Jesus received this type of laughter on the cross when they were casting lots for pieces of his clothing, laughing at him. And Jesus said, while hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like crackling of thorns under a pot, or pops that you hear in a bonfire, how quickly their foolish laughter turned into terror when the earth went dark and the veil tore. Verse 7 reads Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. I follow a YouTuber who discusses politics and philosophy, and one time he talked about a sponsor that would reach out to him continuously to advertise on his channel, and there was, there was always one sponsor that reached out to him that he denied, and it was a mobile phone game called Raid Shadow Legends. Um, <laughs> this YouTuber noted that the reasoning for denying this particular sponsorship is that he believed the game fueled a gambling addiction. and it was just, it was engineered and designed to get you addicted to the game and keep leveling up your character and give them more money. And he stated that the company that made this game offered him $10,000 uh, to advertise a game, that game on his channel, which he denied because he would have felt immoral for advertising a game like that that would introduce a gateway of a gambling addiction. But he took this scenario Kind of into a further thought experiment. And he asked himself, Is there a line, though? Is there a line or an amount of money in which I would have bent on my principles and morality? What if they gave me $50,000? No, I wouldn't bend on that. 100000 Maybe. How about a million? What if they gave you a million dollars to advertise? And, and you know, he, he went on. He thought, if I accepted a million dollars to sponsor this game, I could do a lot of good with that money. You know, I, I could fund a hospital. But it would be through compromising my morals through a means that I wouldn't be comfortable with. And he goes, what should I do? And this is how corruption starts. In politics corporations and yes, even churches. Paper-thin compromises or bribes leads to a corrupt heart. How many times have we heard the supervillain monologue that proclaims that we need to commit evil to bring about a greater good? Thanos, cough-cough. A corrupt official would say that the end justifies the means. But here's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. to consider. It says, One of the great debates of history, mainly through philosophical circles, has been over the whole question of ends and means. There have always been those that argue that the end justifies the means. This is what Martin Luther King says. He says, In the long run of history, destructive means cannot bring about constructive ends. The end is pre-existent in the means. God has given us righteous principles and decrees so that we are protected from when we want to do good, from turning to bribes or oppression or any other evil thing that we think will bring about a better good. Let us rid corruption and hold fast to truth, to his righteous decrees that preserve us and protect us. And speaking of ends, we continue in verse 8, it reads, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. A man or woman seeking paths of righteousness will find that the beginning of that path is very difficult. But the end is sweet and produces spirit and life. A man or woman walking in wickedness will find pleasure in the beginning, but the end will always be bitter and lead to destruction. So it is better to be patient in spirit when seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then have a proud spirit and embrace an easy and broad beginning. And one way we can temper our spirit and to be more patient is listed in verse 9, where it says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Or as James chapter 1 verse 20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Doesn't God get angry? He does. There is a difference, though, between the anger of man and the anger of God. The anger of man is sinful, illogical, quick. But the anger of God is slow, lovingly steadfast, and has righteous reason for why he's angry. Whenever anger stirs up in a situation, pause. And ask yourself, is my anger justified? Anger can easily become so lodged in the soul where it becomes our default in any situation that's upsetting. Move on to verse 10, where it says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom you ask of this. There's a very funny movie I really love, uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Has anyone seen that one? It's a great movie. Highly recommend it. There is a character in the movie named Uncle Rico uh, who visits his nephew Napoleon. Uh, Uncle Rico, you know, pretty cool guy. He's constantly reminiscing about his glory days as being a quarterback in high school. And uh, he's so obsessed and hilarious in the movie about the days of being a quarterback, he's like, you know, he sees a mountain range and he goes, how much you want to bet I can throw a football over the mountains and he just like flicks it and he's just, he's ridiculous. And th- th- this guy is so delusionally fixated on the past that he buys a time machine on the internet to take him back to his high school days. And all that time machine ends up doing is electrocuting him and it's hilarious. Um, but t- cherishing memories of the past is good, and it's a gift from the Lord, but it's when, we, it's when we don't accept the days that have been given to us now and dwell in the past wishing that we could go back. That's when it becomes folly. Solomon is saying that dwelling in the past, there is not from wisdom. And considering wisdom, we move on to verses 11 and 12 where it says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. With wealth, money being a finite resource, it typically only lasts three generations. Um, If there's a lack of financial literacy and That is passed down from generation to generation. And without proper knowledge of money management, families tend to deplete their wealth over time. And this verse is saying wealth is gained with wisdom, but also preserved with wisdom. I know this is getting very segmented. Are you guys still with me? Awesome. Thank you. Verse 13 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? This verse describes one of the most frustrating human experiences in our rebellion against God. I'd, I'd like to, if you direct your, sorry, direct your attention to the screen of Exodus chapter four, verses 10 through 11, where Moses is giving his excuses to God of why he can't go to Pharaoh to demand that He let God's people go. The word of God reads: But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? What's a frustrating weakness that we have that God hasn't strengthened or remedied? For me, it's my neurotic mind. Um, I'm convinced that I will overthink until the day I die. And I even overthink about that. I describe it as overanalysis into paralysis. But listen to what God says to Moses about Moses' weaknesses. In the following verse, he says, Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. God says to me, I will make your crooked thoughts straight. It's Jesus saying to you and to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. When Jesus and his disciples come across a blind man, And they go, Jesus, what caused this man's blindness? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, this man is blind to manifest the glory of God. Jesus then makes who is blind now see. It doesn't matter if the stick is crooked to draw straight lines. What matters is the one who is holding the crooked stick that makes the lines straight. God. The maker of all things and of all days, as it states in verse 14: In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find anything that will be after him. When I read a verse like this, I I take it into consideration as practical wisdom. It's a prescription of what we should be doing on days of joy and days of trouble. Right? When when you're experiencing prosperity, be joyful. On the tough days, know that the maker of all days has made the day of trouble as purposeful as the day of prosperity. So that man will not find out any other day that comes after him. Why is that important? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Why is that important to mention here? It's so that we have our faith and fear in the Lord God Almighty who makes all days of joy and trouble work for His glory and our good for those who love Him. Verses 15 through 18 read, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. When we, read the, when we consider this section, what does it mean to be overly righteous, overly wise? Is that even possible? Can we actually, is there a line where we should stop being wise and and, and righteous? What Solomon is pointing out here is that principles such as righteousness and wisdom need to be properly weighted. Weighted is an incredibly important word when we are discussing ethics, principles, morality, And we need to consider weight of these qualities. To further describe what I mean, uh, direct your attention to the screen of Matthew 23. It's a scene where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus uses the word weighty because the Pharisees have put too much weight in being righteous. They put so much weight in being righteous that they become petty and absurd. To where Jesus states, you strain out the gnat and swallow the camel. He's saying that you've become So overly concerned that you have, with being righteous and wise, that you have missed the more weightier matters. How about love? How about justice? How about mercy? It's vanity to put all of your eggs in one thing. Instead, let us hold fast, revering the Lord and submit to his commandments and receiving his love and imitate him as he is. Another piece of proverbial wisdom in verse 19 reads, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. This gives echo to the saying, the pen is mightier than the sword. I think of Joseph who was so wise that he went from prisoner to second in command in Egypt to Pharaoh. You know, a a wise man can conquer a nation and rule that nation. But even with the power of a wise man, we come to a sobering conclusion in verse 20. It says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Even the wisest of men like Joseph and Solomon were great sinners. But this statement should lead us to still waters. While there is not a righteous man that does good and never sins, there is one, Jesus and this verse is confirmation that no man can claim that they never sin. And these, these, next, these next couple of verses in Ecclesiastes are some of my favorites. Um, they've helped me greatly. Verses 21 through 22 read, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. By the way, when you see the word lest, it means... Just replace it with in case. So if we read that again, do not take to heart all the things that people say in case you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. I read these verses in my late 20s and it's one of those times where I wish I would have, would have heard this wisdom in my teenage years. Uh, there, there, there are words that people have expressed to me that, that have truly that have caught to the core you know, there's, people can insult us and, and, and hurt us, and they can, it can leave you immobilized and stirring in anger, but Solomon here gives us practical wisdom that when you do hear vicious or cutting words said about you or to you, just remember the times in your heart where you have cursed others. Everything you said about that person that you didn't quite mean because you were angry, you were sad, you were jealous, and you were feeling at the time... Any anger in your heart that inflamed your language to that person. This advice has saved me many hours of sleep. There's something to having grace for someone else, knowing that you yourself have done it as well. Don't take everything to heart. Guard your heart, for everything flows from it. In these next couple verses, we come to a surmising conclusion that addresses the previous verses. Verses 23 through 24, it says all this, all this. So everything that, we've, everything that we've read, Solomon's coming to occlusion and saying all this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Psalm is explaining again the vanity of Wisdom. Socrates famously said, the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. No matter how much wisdom we gain under the sun, plumbing the depths of knowledge and wisdom will do nothing for us except leave us exhausted and weary. Let us not seek to be overly wise. In all this, Solomon follows up with what he's learned in verses 25 through 26. He says, I turn my heart to to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of, of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolish that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. We see this section begin with Solomon personally seeking wisdom and, and, and understanding wickedness and folly and foolishness, and he comes to the conclusion that there is an ensnarement greater, bit more bitter than death, and it's, he says it's a seductive woman. I know that the language in these verses is a little old here and, and harder to understand, but that is what Solomon is referring to. Now, is Solomon saying that every woman is seductive? Absolutely not. this is the same author that wrote Proverbs 31, who wrote these beautiful lines It says, strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. There is a great reverence for a woman who fears the Lord. Solomon is referring to a type of woman as he continues in verses 27 through 28. He says, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. What does that last part mean? One man among a thousand, but a woman of these I have not found. What is Solomon referring to? I want to take this time to introduce a, a, a helpful tool that I use to sometimes get the full context in Scripture. Um, especially when we're going through this section by section. Here's what the Amplified Version reads. Now, this Amplified Version does not add to the Bible, but it does include parentheses to put the verse in the full context of the chapter. So, it reads, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand who pleases God, but I have not found such a woman among all these, a thousand in my harem. Now, when we read verses like this, we do need to weigh it with other parts of Scripture. Again, is Solomon saying this of all women? No. That would contradict the description of Proverbs 31, of which he so praises, strength is her dignity, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Essentially, what Solomon is getting at is that it is so rare to find one person that pleases God that has been ensnared in sin. However, we see that he makes the distinction here between men and women. Some commentators say that Solomon is referring strictly to the women around him that he knows are in his harem, as we see in the Amplified Version. Some commentators say that Solomon may be referring the one man in a thousand as to himself. Actually, I don't believe that he's referring himself as the one man in a thousand. I do agree with some commentators that the one man in a thousand is a prophetic and poetic delivery that refers to the one man who did actually please God and live uprightly, Jesus As we read in verse 29, it says, See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And this is the last verse of this chapter. And it is stating that the one man, Adam, was made upright, and he had fallen to the schemes of the serpent. One man was made upright, but now we who are affected by sin and born into sin, then the second Adam, Jesus, who lived the upright life on our behalf and was crucified for the sins that we committed and crucified for the schemes that we sought out. I began this message with um, talking about evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins who asked the question, why would the same all-wise, all-knowing, powerful God that created this entirely beautiful universe be so concerned over such a small and foolish thing like Jesus dying on the cross. The Bible speaks of this contrast of wisdom and folly and God is glorified in using wisdom and folly as a paradox. In 1 Corinthians, it will be up on the screen, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved It is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And finally, 1 Corinthians verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now is God Foolish? It's not what this verse is saying. To the world, he's foolish. But what do we make this paradox of what, when the Bible, when God uses wisdom and foolishness together? And it, what we can surmise is that it is to display that the most ardent, intelligent, and wise scholar stumbles over what a little child can understand. As it is written, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed to them, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You can be the wisest person who ever lived and miss the most important truth, yet you can be a child who knows very little and know the one who knows all things, Jesus. Truly, wisdom is meaningless without Jesus and everyone sitting here make it your main goal to know Jesus know his words to you know the sound of his voice or the conviction of the spirit embrace his presence in prayer you don't need to become an expert in anything just become an expert in knowing Jesus you don't need to be a master of anything you just need to be mastered by Jesus Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's it. While you are living under the sun, know God and be known by God, and soon you will be beyond the sun to forever know God, and can be known by God. Wisdom alone, we have been using this word in the entire series of Ecclesiastes. Wisdom alone is Hevel. It is vapor. It is smoke. Let us not learn wisdom or anything, but let us learn the wisdom of Jesus. Jesus in heaven. Sorry, Jesus in wisdom is heaven. Would you pray with me?